1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobek, and I'm a PhD candidate in social cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am thrilled to welcome back Professor Stan B H Tan Tangbao to the show as my first repeat guest. Professor Tan Tangbao is a Vietnamologist who has taught at the National University of Singapore as well as Ritsumeikan University in Japan. Today, we are discussing his new book, written in collaboration with Liu Quan Min and Quen Tien Duc, entitled Jazz in Socialist Hanoi, Improvisations Between Worlds, which was published in 2022 with Routledge. Professor Tan Tangbao, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Adam. It's great to see you again. I am
0: most honored to be your first repeat guest.
1: So why Hanoi?
0: Well, um... When we talk about jazz in, in Vietnam, I, I, I reckon some people would think about we. I should be writing about Saigon because, after all, um, Saigon was in the ambit of the Americans' influence for quite a long time during the Vietnam War. Certainly, the influences there. But if we are talking about present day jazz, if we are talking about the emergence of jazz under socialist rule, it has got to be in Hanoi. For a few reasons. Number one, it is in Hanoi where we find a very active group, quite a significant group of musicians, Vietnamese musicians playing jazz regularly, professionally. It is in Hanoi that we have the first Vietnamese-owned jazz club, Ming's Jazz Club. This year will mark the 25th anniversary of the club. It's been playing jazz continuously for 25 years now. That's quite a record in in Asia, I would reckon, as, and in, of all places in Vietnam. And it is also in Vietnam, in, in Hanoi, and the um, National Academy of Music. That's the National Conservatoire, where jazz is first introduced as an official subject beginning in the early 1990s, before it kind of expanded into a full-fledged faculty several years ago. So it makes sense to talk about If you want to talk about jazz in Hanoi in present-day Vietnam, here's to start with Hanoi.
1: So starting in Hanoi, could we begin kind of where music was at during and after the war in Vietnam? Sure.
0: Now, um, most of us who are familiar with Vietnam will know that um, during the war, um, cultural practices are all very tightly controlled. One reason being, of course, the war in the South, the Liberation War, and the second reason being that Vietnam at that time, Northern Vietnam actually, was at a stage of a very intensive socialist revolution, working towards um, um, achieving socialism. So things were so tightly controlled, there's really not much resources left for many other things. So, music at that time was basically asked to serve the interest of the revolution, the interest of the nation in terms of fighting the war. So, people will be familiar with this term called rape music or nyak do, where these are all very um, patriotic music. Music that's a filled with slogans um, that conveys the messages of different social reform campaigns, um, campaigns to fight the war, to mobilize resources for the war and everything. So these are pretty heavy music. And these are the kind of music that we will hear on the radio, on the public speakers, and especially live performances where you have all these um state um, song and dance troops, artists' troops going around to perform, to raise funds, mobilize resources, to encourage the people, to boost the morale of the troops. They'll be playing all this kind of music in order to get everyone into the act, to, to support whatever the state and the party was trying to do. Very heavy duty music. So that's the main thing that we hear. But at the same time, in order to have people able to play all this kind of music, these are not easy music to be played in the first place, uh, to compose this uh, music, they have to pour in resources to, to train musicians. So they, they formed the Vietnam School of Music, which later um, became the, the, the National Academy of Music in Vietnam. So over there, they were trained. The musicians who, who, who helped to establish the school, they focused very strongly on... Um, high art music, namely classical music, what they call proper mainstream music, the proper art form, the highest art form in music. So it was very serious about classical music. It's all about training how them how to master the instruments, understand the theory in classical music so that they can compose their own music for different purposes, especially for the revolution, and as well as to raise the, the artistic level, aesthetics level, of the general population. And along the way, you have a lot of support from the socialist allies from China, from Eastern Europe, from Russia, sending musicians and professors coming to Vietnam to train them or giving them scholarship to study in these host countries so that they can get their proper certifications, get received proper training. So so in, in, in the public sphere, other than red music, you do hear some classical music. And the other one is, of course, um, traditional um, ethnic and folk music in Vietnam. So it's about, it's a kind of nationalism emphasizing the ethnic diversity of the country and unity of the population, of a diverse population. So you have these ethno ethnic music is going out to collect the performances of the ethnic minorities, bringing them back to the city to train them to learn how to play this kind of music. And pass it on to other people. So we hear quite a fabric of um, traditional ethnic and folk music in in the public sphere as well. But it's all in the public sphere. Although um, other popular music that were commonly heard before the war, popular Vietnamese music, they were kind of um, implicitly banned initially, then explicitly restricted and prohibited later on. They call that yellow music. You, you don't hear this in the public sphere. People dare not even sing them or play them at home for fear that someone will report you. But in very informal occasions, um, like wedding parties, birthday parties, any possible occasion where you can cele- do some proper celebration, approved by the state, they do play. Um, lighter music like um, pokers That's very, this, this this is very common during that era um, they will play popular classical music shortened version of it things like uh, sabre dance uh, in the Persian market these were very popular tunes in, in Vietnam they also play some um, dance music like cha 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 rumba tango for people to listen. Sometimes they do dance if there's not too many people watching, etc. So they, they do have all this kind of instrumental music that were being played during that era. So that was music during the war. Then after the war, what, what we we know for sure was that, especially after 1975, with the South being reunited the country, the strong influences from the United States and other Western countries, it was about holding back you know, keeping in check all these um, Western capitalist influences so it was a, a period of very strict control of what could be played in the public sphere, what could be played at home very, very tight control so yellow music was definitely a no-go you can't even whistle it, that thing for, for, for a period of time but, they were, but the influence of all this music was too strong. It kind of seeped into everyday music. Even the northern musicians who come into content and say, these, these are good melodies, these are sophisticated music. So they also introduced that those rhythms, those beats, the different instrumentations, especially the electric band, into the kind of light music they were originally playing at parties and celebrations informally. So... As um, Liu kuang puts it, there was a, a social need for lighter music. It was a period where the serious red music it couldn't really gel well with the needs of the population in peacetime. So they need to have the people who could really play this kind of music. And so that was uh, after the war, especially from the late 1970s onwards even so-called great music that was played for lighter occasions kind of had this kind of influences. Ming himself re- remembers forming a combo band with. It was kind of influenced by jazz rhythms playing all these, ad- all these songs for the audience. So there was a period of change. It was like the the rise of light music from the late 1970s onwards. So this is recounted in several chapters in the book. It's quite a fascinating um, um, story on its own. Maybe later on someone will, will write a book that focuses specifically on jazz, light music in Vietnam.
1: Yeah, so you you touch on these different categorizations of music, red music, you just referred to yellow music, uh, light music, and initially jazz as you write it in the 1980s, is included under that label of light music, right? Yes.
0: Well, the, the story of how jazz um, was, was allowed to be played, I mean, I, I talked about this in the earlier book. In this book, I talked talk about it in more detail in, in, a more, in a larger context. We all know that jazz is um, originated from America, so there was no way jazz could, could be heard, could be played. After the war, there was no way. But if we look at the broader context of the world, jazz was played in behind the iron curtain, so you can find hear it everywhere in Eastern Europe. So keep in mind, during the nineteen fifties, nineteen sixties, nineteen seventies, the Eastern European countries were holding their own jazz festivals, and many um the US were sending their own musicians there as part of the um um jazz ambassador program to, to play music, to play jazz for the audience there. So they were intermingling with other star musicians like Dizzy Gillespie, Louis Armstrong, Stan Getz, and the list go on, so on and so forth, we well, visited all these places. Of course they grew back in Poland, playing jazz with them and these the, the musicians in Eastern Europe were also influenced by them. And there was a, a strong growth of jazz. In, behind the Iron Curtain, but not jazz in the sense of the kind of jazz that we're all familiar with. Different countries are trying to develop their own jazz. So, okay, since it's so popular, instead of just letting it be something from from the capitalist West, from, from the Americans, can we develop our own jazz that is socialist, correct? That is um, something that we, that we can say see something original from maybe from our own traditions. And they did that. Different countries were able to create their own jazz in different ways. So, for example, in Poland, we heard about Polsky jazz, Polish jazz, which is very unique qualities, heavily drawn from um, its rich cultural traditions. So these things were already there. So what helped the jazz musicians in Vietnam who, were, who wanted to play jazz was that they could say that you can hear jazz in Eastern Europe. It can be seen as um, socialist music. That's one. And the second thing is that did you, they were riding on the wave of the light music that was emerging, that was rising from the late 1970s onwards. So when, when Van Ming first performed jazz in the public sphere in 1988 and 1989, he was very careful. He presented Jazz as international light music. So it helped, okay? Jazz could be seen as socialist music. Jazz is international light music. So they kind of disassociated it with that very strong connection to American music, music of the enemy. And Gun Banming wasn't the only person who did that. Liu Guangming, when he tried to introduce jazz into the curriculum, at the National Conservatoire. He knew straightway if he's going to introduce it as jazz music, everyone would say, no, this is too risky. and all that. So he presented it as light music. And he knew this is very high quality music that if musicians learn how to play jazz, they could play light music better. They could raise the standard of light music instead of just relegating light music to popular music that has got no artistic value at all. And he felt that national conservatoire musicians like themselves have the responsibility to raise that standard. So the, he introduced it as light Music and it was very successful because from 1991 onwards they started experimenting with a pilot program, then it became a permanent um, department and finally a, a faculty in its own right. So. That was how they kind of successfully disassociated jazz from its um, American capitalist connections in the early days. Although Vietnam was undergoing um, the Doi Moi reforms, opening up to the world, adopting the market economy, but these were um, pretty delicate times. You have to be careful what you do. So they, they took a very, um, say, um, calculated steps to make sure that it is a sustainable end
1: And as you write in the book, right, there were two things going on. At the same time that they were labeling it international light music, they were also incorporating elements of Vietnamese folk music. Could you talk about that a little bit? Oh, sure. See, this... um this endeavour
0: to draw from their traditional musical heritage was not something new, was not something invented by the Vietnamese musicians. So even from the early days when Vietnamese music started to, to modernise, like they took on um, Western structures of popular music, the chanson, etc., and they started writing lyrics for their own modern popular music they always keep in mind that, okay, using Vietnamese language, using local themes, etc. But in the 1950s, when uh, the communist government was going to start um, uh, to, to form the National Conservatoire, the Vietnam School of Music, and also to start uh, forming the music associations, all these leading musicians, they got together and, and they had robust discussion. What directions should we go? How should we develop the music scene in Vietnam? How should we develop music in Vietnam? How should we develop musical education in Vietnam? They acknowledge that things like classical music, these are very international traditions. These are proven to be a very high art form that everyone in the world could learn something from, could draw something from. So what could they do to develop their own traditional musical heritage. So they always remind people that whatever their own musicians, that whatever that we do, if we go towards classical music, great music, we should always, always try to do two things. One is draw from our rich heritage so that we have our own identity. And number two, we should also find always find ways and means to, to develop our traditional heritage so that they are not left behind. it continues to, to move with the development of our society. And one of the phrases that they used at that time was that if if we totally ignore our, uh, I'm paraphrasing, if we totally ignore our traditional musical heritage, we have no legs to stand on in the world. So we always have to do that. So there, there's always this constant reminder among Vietnamese musicians that, We must always think about our traditional musical heritage, think about our own musical identity. So when jazz musicians started playing jazz in Vietnam, they always have to make the comparison. that Okay, this is international black music. Um, In what ways is it compatible with our society, with our culture? So remember in the 1980s, late 1980s, this was the era of disco music, heavy rock music. And these were for a while considered as really bad influences on the young generation. This just noise. This is not art. Keeping long hair, smoking, bell bottoms. It was like, <laughs> so they have to, to make sure that Jazz being presented as international light music is also compatible with Vietnamese traditional musical heritage, cultural heritage, you see. Uh, Can we draw something from there and show that we can have our compositions to our own compositions? Can we call it our own jazz, Vietnamese jazz, if it is compatible? So the seeds were planted right at the beginning that they have to show that it is compatible and it is on par with chamber music in vietnam classical music in, in vietnam that it could develop in that kind of into a form of high art too so what happened was that vietnamese musicians also had to be very careful you cannot just take a traditional folk song and jazzify it because it's a traditional heritage if you jazzify it and it's not well done or someone doesn't like it, you could say that, look, you just insulted our own musical heritage and that's going to be a problem. So what they did from the beginning was compose their own melodies, borrow different scales, structures, themes from the traditional ethnic and folk music, for example, among um, the kind of scales, the, the pentatonic scales that you could hear in different ethnic minority musics, different kind of rhythms that you could hear from, for example, the Central Highlanders in Vietnam, or themes that you could hear in traditional everyday practices from Buddhist chanting to funerals or ethnic folk song, or, or traditional folk songs such as Guan uh, Hong from from, from Ning etc. So they try to draw from all these kind of different influences, borrow some rhythms, scales, structures, etc. But using their own original melodies. So that was how tradition, um, Vietnamese jazz started to evolve from the very early days. It's not a justification of traditional folk music, I have to emphasize that.
1: And in Chapter 3... To kind of shift track for a minute in chapter three you start talking about places where in hanoi today you can hear live jazz music can we talk about those places
0: oh, oh sure um let's start with um um in uh diplomatic occasions all right so I, I will always remember being a Singaporean, um, living in Vietnam or visiting Vietnam. Every now and then I would attend, if the, if the, if the time is right, I would be attending things like the National Day receptions held in, in the different hotels in Vietnam. And I, I will always remember when I was attending my first one, my first National Day reception in Hanoi, it was only not too long ago, just several years ago. And as I was walking towards a hotel, a familiar voice called to me. Uh, someone sitting by one of the the roadside tea shops, right? And calling out to me. I said, oh, who's this guy calling out to me? And then, hey, it's my, my friend who played saxophone at the jazz club. A Vietnamese friend. Say, uh, and he said, you, you coming for the reception? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, I'll be playing later. Oh, okay. That's fascinating. So true enough. His quartet was playing for the entire reception. They were playing jazz pieces. They were playing um, jazz arrangements of um, National Day songs that, that we often play and sing in Singapore. It was fascinating. So impressed. It's like, gosh, Vietnamese jazz musicians playing at a diplomatic event. Actually, this was something that's a uh, regular occurrence. It's, it's very good revenue for them in terms of gigs because these are well-paid gigs, very formal gigs, very respectable. So even from the early days, days of um, introducing jazz in Vietnam, people like Gun Van Ninh and his colleagues, when they played jazz, even before his, he formed his jazz club, this was one of those um, diplomatic gigs were one of the chief sources of income for them and occasions for them to play jazz. So you'll hear that. It, it's a common occurrence, you'll hear that, if you attend all these different um, gatherings, diplomatic gatherings. There's one, quite unexpected, of, of all places, Vietnam. And then you will hear jazz at the Five Star Hotels. So the Five Star Hotels were one of the earlier places that introduced jazz to in, in socialist Vietnam, when Vietnam started opening up. What they did at that time was initially they would hire some local musicians who could, namely Quentin Van Nim and his colleagues at that time, just a small group of them, who could play some jazz. They would hire them. Um, But what they did very soon after was they started flying musicians from overseas, American musicians, European musicians, who were very active in the um, hotel jazz lounge scene in the region to come in and perform. So, they will do that, but quite often they will, they will have the rhythm, the, the a local rhythm section to, to, to back up these singers or the key musicians. So, hotels will be five star, especially the five star hotels, will be the places where you will hear jazz. But the problem is this with the diplomatic occasions and with the five star hotels is that five star hotels are really expensive. So, if you go in and you find that Especially during the 1990s and the early 2000s, it's mainly foreigners. Because for Vietnamese to go there, yes, they can afford it, but it's not the music. Either. Why do I want to pay so much to come here? And for the diplomatic occasions, yes, it's mainly foreigners and with um, uh, Vietnamese who have, are of a certain stature in the government, not in society attending these events. So it's not something that um, the ordinary bit is get do encounter jazz in this kind of life on places it was only after 1997 that after ming from ming's jazz club the first jazz club in socialist vietnam that you have a place that is accessible to anyone who lives in hanoi uh, the prices uh, have always been low no cover charge and they play music they only play jazz so you can't go in and expect to hear popular Vietnamese music, rock music, you noise know, always jazz, everyday jazz. So this is the main place that you hear jazz continuously. And over time you, you see other cafes, restaurants introducing jazz. Um, in the book, I talk about one particular restaurant that was that actively um, engaged all these musicians to play jazz there for, for their diners, for their customers. But it closed out after several years. So that's one of the issues about um, all these other places that's perhaps slightly cheaper. Bars, restaurants, they come and go. It's not easy to do business in Vietnam. And the five-star hotels, it's expensive. Um, sometime, and one of the things that the musicians, uh, the, jazz, the Vietnamese jazz musicians of Auton me is that, yes, you, you, we play jazz there, but we play very light jazz, very easy listening kind of jazz. If you start to improvise too much, it gets too intense, people can't find the melody, you'll get feedback from the manager. Keep it simple. <laughs> so, these are the places. So, but One of the most interesting things is that in, in Vietnam, you find jazz at the opera house. That's the, 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 the Hanoi opera house that was built by the French. And this is like the dream theater for any musicians in Vietnam. If you're a serious musician, that is a stage that you want to perform in. It is like for American jazz musicians, it's like for, for them to perform at the Carnegie Hall. So it's a huge thing. And guess what? It's a regular occurrence in Vietnam for the last 20 years. Either Ming or his younger colleagues will be holding concerts there. So every year you will find at least a few, a couple of few concerts Jazz concerts by Vietnamese jazz musicians. And it's becoming quite a regular occurrence in the last few years as more Vietnamese jazz musicians finished their studies overseas, started teaching at the conservatoire, becoming really active in the local music scene. Because quite often, if they are playing as professional musicians, they are playing pop music other things of teaching. So the time when they really get to do a real performance an indulgent performance in jazz, is either a jazz club, which is everyday thing, or you go to the Hanang Opera House to do a really, really serious presentation that will leave a lasting impression to anyone who, who comes by. So these are the places that you hear jazz in, and it's quite impressive, I would say.
1: Speaking of men's jazz club, you would you call uh, the perfect jazz club towards the end of the book um, he's faced a lot of problems over the years with the jazz club right yeah and you just mentioned of course that restaurants and bars in Vietnam also have difficulties staying open maybe you could touch on some of the problems that Min has faced over the years
0: oh um, sure sure. so maybe I should start with the current situation so when Ming started this jazz club, it was meant as a training ground, ground training ground for Vietnamese musicians who aspire to play jazz. So this could be students studying with him and his colleagues at the National Conservatoire or in other music schools in Hanoi, and they're learning to play jazz. And to play jazz, you really have to perform live, and. If the five-star hotels or other restaurants engage you for a gig, you are not going to bunker up the gig because you are, you are going to be disinvited pretty soon. So this jazz club becomes a place for all these aspiring jazz musicians to try it out, to really get the experience. And of course, it's always sandwiched in between the acts by the more seasonal musicians. So the aspiring ones would play one or two songs, but the rest of the time is always by assistant musicians. So who are the people who come in and support the jazz club? Over the last, I mean, I've been going to this jazz club since, um, I think around 1998 or so. So the first time I went to Vietnam was 1997. The jazz club just opened towards the end of the year. I think it was later on. Um, no, that's ninety nine. So... I noticed that it's mainly foreigners who will go to the Minx Jazz Club because I I think the way I I felt during those days, my initial experience at the Jazz Club, something that's identified by any foreign visitors, is that either I've been travelling in Vietnam for quite a while or I've been living there for quite a while, sometimes we just long for that kind of music that we really enjoy, that we really like, and it's, at times listening to a CD, to a cassette or radio, there's recorded music, it's it's just, it's just not good enough anymore. It's like we've been there for a while, we long to hear it live and to see that there's a jazz club offering live jazz, there's a very attractive option every now and then for us to just go in and be absorbed and buy the music and enjoy it. So I many I think many foreigners I identify in this way is that oh gosh, jazz <laughs> finally of all places in Vietnam. Then there's also other foreigners they finds it very uh, interesting, refreshing to have jazz here. We're curious want to hear what they are doing. And the number of Vietnamese over the years has always been small very small percentage. Sometimes I could maybe find one or two and they don't usually stay long. But over the years, it has been growing the number of Vietnamese audience at the jazz club. So when the pandemic happened, um, when they closed the borders to international travel, travelers and it, even af- after they allowed um, people back on the streets, the clubs to be reopened after the in- in- initial lockdown, there was this concern, will there be customers coming to the Jazz Club? So I remember the first day they reopened, I, I went back to show my support and also you know, I, I just need to go out And after such a long lockdown. To my surprise, it was filled with people, 90% Vietnamese audience. And so there was perhaps the initial um, excitement of you know, things opening up. But over time, The numbers of regular audience dropped down during the pandemic period. What we do find is that the percentage of Vietnamese audience was quite significant. So the chief difficulty that Ming encouraged at the beginning in the early parts of the jazz club was finding the audience. So yes, foreign audience are always welcome because they appreciate the music, they're willing to pay for it. Well, pay for the beers, just sit down and enjoy the music but he, 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 not not too many winners were coming. So that's the chief difficulty there. So surprisingly, the pandemic actually um, showed that things have changed. It kind of helped in resolving that difficulty. And more importantly, it, it was like um, a reminder to all the jazz musicians. It is really about time that you pay attention to really cultivating the domestic audience, because they are the ones who are here all the time. They're the ones who ultimately be the people supporting your artistic pursuits. So finding the audience, that's one of the chief difficulties. Other difficulties, I mean, it's plenty of course, we're talking about at the end of the day, the jazz club is a business. So being a business means you have not to not just make ends meet. You have to pay a musicians a certain rate. It has to be attractive. But one thing that we all know is that Ming's Jazz Club has the lowest gig rate in Hanoi or in Vietnam. But musicians go there to play simply because they want to play jazz. So and because of this, um, that it's being a business, so they cannot afford to pay high rate. So. For a long time, Ming's jazz club until now remains a training ground for aspiring musicians, remains that haunt for seasoned jazz musicians who just want to play jazz and don't really care much about how much money that they make. There is this really dedicated group of Vietnamese jazz musicians there. But there are many who who spent their initial years playing there and went out to... Do their own gigs, get more lucrative gigs, whether playing jazz or other musical genres. So it kind of um, limits the, the musical development of the jazz club itself during the year round. And again, what happened during this pandemic, during the past two years, was that um, the seasoned musicians themselves, people like, for example, Doug, find that. This is actually also a place where they can actually really experiment. So when they started writing new music, they finished everything. They could try it out there instead of just go spending a huge amount of money to hold a big concert at the Hanoi Opera House or other concert halls. So they could do like mini shows there to try out new stuff. So it kind of <laughs> gave the jazz club and identity, that's more than just like um, a, a training ground for aspiring jazz musicians all the time. So um, again, the pandemic um, has its ups and downs for many people. Opportunities lost, opportunities gained. So these are the two things that are identified as the, the chief difficulties that they have faced over the years. Other things, it's okay, things like when the lease run out, what do they do? Do they continue there? Because they see that, oh, you've been successful, you have customers coming, you've been there for a long time without changing hands for five years, ten years. I'm going to raise a rent. What are you going to do? Because if they pay more rent, they can't afford to run the jazz club and also have to move. So it has to move, and it moves several times over the past 25 years. That's that's the difficulty. It's it's a problem for any jazz club, I believe. But then the advantage, saving grace, is that uh, they managed to establish a a reputation for themselves that is not tied to a particular location but rather to the name. And that's not something that many other cafes or restaurants that have been introducing jazz eggs could do. So um well if we go to the problems and I can imagine Ming shaking his head right now, because Bamin shaking his head and then spending the whole night telling you all the different problems they encounter. So I guess these few problems are identified as sufficient for now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, b- before the pandemic, the Jazz Club was also open seven days a week, right? Has that changed?
0: What well, has changed during the the, the the pandemic when they started to reopen, they realized that they just cannot afford to do that seven days a week now. Because although you have more no Vietnamese um, customers coming in, but they won't be coming in seven days a week and you have no one there, no one to pay for the beer, for the drinks, for the food. Then they have no income to pay for the musicians. So it has been reduced to about five days, four days, not for the time being. So they were ho- they have been hoping that, um, when the foreign tourists start returning, they could revert back to seven days. So, um, all this reopening is, of course, good news for everyone, but I just hope that um, they don't depend on that to, to, and, and, and then sit back in their laurels and say, okay, things are back to normal again. I think a chief lesson that we can take from the pandemic is that we can, we can rest comfortably in our laurels about the, the current state of affairs. We have to keep thinking about what can we do better? What can we change? So hopefully, um, the the musicians and their supporters are thinking of ways to reinvent the jazz clubs too. So this is something an ongoing ongoing
1: conversation. I think, Professor Tan Tangbo, you're maybe one of the most knowledgeable people on this topic on the planet. I wondered if you could maybe talk about what you see for the future of jazz in Hanoi. Well,
0: for the future of jazz in Hanoi, I would say that it has passed on to the next generation. So if you look at people like Liu Guangming, Guilba Ming is the first generation of jazz musicians, educators in socialist Vietnam. In their 60s and 70s, they are I mean, they're still very actively involved, teaching, performing, organizing events. They're still doing all that. But the main people in the limelight are the people in the next generations, Guitian Da and the later generations. So what this group of younger musicians have been doing is that they've been very actively um, constructing their own um, spaces for performance. Again, during the pandemic, they really ventured into the virtual realm. Live stream concerts, sharing vi- um, jazz and TVs, sharing messages about what they are doing, setting up um, Facebook pages to tell people where you can find jazz performances every now and then in Vietnam. So they have ventured into that and they're very actively involved instead of sitting back to wait for someone to organize things for them. And they are all very competent musicians, not just because they are from the internet age, so they could have better access to information, instructional videos, um, recordings by other musicians overseas. Also because they have better opportunities to be better trained at the conservatoire, privately with uh, other musicians so they are better trained they are better informed, and there are more opportunities for them to perform so they're actually able to have pretty good income to a certain extent from playing jazz not just and of course they they have opportunities to teach as well so um, and again, back to the pandemic is that they kind of, because they have to start focusing on domestic audience, they also realize that what they have to do to kind of engage a local audience is actually to again look, not just look into traditional musical heritage that's important for their original compositions, but also to engage with um the popular music genre. So singing performing songs about Hanoi, giving um, jazz versions of popular uh, songs. So they have been doing that. They are beginning to engage. So in this sense, the frequency of hearing jazz, the accessibility of jazz in Vietnam has hit a very positive juncture. You can hear that quite a, quite a fair bit. You don't have to find one place to hear it. The musicians know what they're doing. They're always striving to improve. So it's another positive thing. But what I am concerned at this point is, um, number one, that are they coming up with creative, innovative, original compositions that do not just follow what has been done before? Are they doing that sufficiently? are they releasing these original compositions in the public sphere? Because I do know some of these musicians are very productive. They write their own music. They produce their own CDs, but it's not widely distributed. So if you produce something, but then it's not widely distributed, it's kind of like we have to go and find it, but only if we know about it and if we're interested. So music is like um, some... Um, scholars call it a community of practice, where you have the musicians playing the music, where you have the people in between who help you to bring the music to a wider audience. So this could be the radio DJ, this could be the events organizer, concert organizers, a whole group of different people who bring the music to the wider society and you have the listeners. So it needs to come full circle, in order for jazz to be sustainable for a long time. Especially in the early years of Vietnamese jazz, that that, that circle was quite limited, but it was enough because they were playing to the audience who would allow the music to be played. <laughs> the cultural power brokers say this is ideologically okay music we can play. It allows it to be part of the official soundscape to be taught at the national concert, to be played at diplomatic events, to have a jazz club that plays every night, to be played, performed at the uh, Hanoi Opera House. So for a long time, that worked. But in order for it to be sustainable as a professional art form, they need to expand that um, community of practice for it to be sustainable. And you will also find that as more and more Vietnamese um, become more cosmopolitan, whether they've been educated, given a Western-oriented education, a modern education, been overseas, working with foreign companies in Vietnam, you, you find quite a number of Vietnamese who are familiar with jazz as a musical genre or even taken a liking to it. So chances are many of these Vietnamese will be looking to jazz as played, as performed in North America or Europe or versions of it in Southern South America as the kind of jazz that they like, that they're familiar with and using that as a yardstick to compare with what they would hear live in Vietnam what they would hear in recordings found in Vietnam, or these original recordings that I talked about in the earlier book, and so in the second chapter of this book. And they start comparing. Will will this new Vietnamese audience take to Vietnamese jazz that's currently being played? That remains a question that we have to investigate further. Because one problem that we have is that um, although you can find Vietnamese um, jazz music on Spotify, on Apple Music, um, it probably won't appear in your preference or your recommended list (laughs) for many of these listeners. probably won't appear, so you probably won't find it. Um, And and as people start to look for more um, cultural artifacts, like... um, vinyl records, is becoming popular again nowadays, you won't find Vietnamese jazz records anywhere because it's not produced as vinyl records. CDs, yes, they're available and again, the problem is that it's not widely distributed. So, the question now for the future of Vietnamese jazz is that this community of practice, is it expanding to bring in all these new listeners for Vietnamese jazz in Vietnam, or it did not. So we are at a pretty critical juncture, I would say, for Vietnamese jazz. What directions will it take? And I think all the pioneer musicians would tell me that it's very critical for us, for Vietnamese jazz musicians, to really have their own voice in the world of jazz, in the jazz world, so to speak, because, and this brings us back to one of the things I said earlier about Vietnamese music during the 1950s and all these pioneer musicians in, in their discussions that if they don't look to their own musical cultural heritage, if they don't develop their own voicing in the jazz world, the jazz planet, they literally have no legs to stand on. Because if you're playing like exactly what other people are playing from North America from Europe, who do you think people will choose to listen? You or the original artist? So it's a pretty critical juncture at this point in terms of its um, sustainability with its own unique identity, or is it just another musical genre that's uh, accessible in Vietnam? Oh, I'm making sense in, wait, 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 sit, put it in this way. Was it the first time I actually talk about this?
1: <laughs> I think it absolutely makes sense. Absolutely. This will come as no surprise to listeners. And this is, of course, why you're my first repeat guest. I have nothing but good things to say about this book. It's so interesting to think and work through what jazz looks like in Vietnam, what it has looked like and what it, how it's developing into the future. You know already, Professor Tang Tangbao, that there's one ritual that I like to keep up on the New Books Network, which is to finally ask at the end of every interview what you are working on now.
0: All right. Um, so, previously, um, when, when we had the same conversa- uh, a similar conversation, I, told I was working on the uh, book on the historical geography of the railway line from Haiphong in Vietnam to Kunming in, in Yunnan province, China. Going a bit slow, still working on it. <laughs> Hope to finish it soon. But um, along the way, um, something interesting happened. Two things, actually. The first thing um, is the, myself and the Vietnamese jazz music, musicians who collaborated with me in these two books, um, Jazz in Socialist Hanoi, Improvisation Between Worlds. There's namely Liu Guangmi and Quy Tien And Playing Jazz in Socialist Vietnam, good Van Ming. So the four of us, we have been invited to do a keynote presentation at the Engaging with Vietnam International Conference at the end of October in Minh City. So this is, um, this is an opportunity for us to express our heartfelt, heartfelt appreciation to the uh, conveners of the, of the conference, namely Professor Liam Kelly and Farah Ha for giving us the opportunity. So it'd be quite exciting. For the first time you have the four of us sitting together to talk not just about the two books but about how Vietnamese musicians and artists really through the, in their pursuit of this art form really work to engage with the their audience to build up an audience with Vietnam, pop the, the population in Vietnam. Because as I said jazz is a community of practice it needs to come full circle and right from the beginning they have been quite well aware of them working towards them so that will be quite exciting that keynote presentation um then the second thing is of course um recently liu kong min and i started working on a book project that's a, a social cultural history of the accordion in socialist vietnam so, we've been talking about music a fair bit, and only red music, yellow music, and all these things. Uh, one of the things that. Uh, Van Mink, no, no, uh, Liu Guangming himself is a noted accordionist in, in Vietnam and an accordionist professor in Vietnam. And one of the things he kept reminding me is that, he said, you know, the accordion is a major instrument in Vietnam. During the war years, through the revolution, and even after liberation. And as you will read, as you have read in the book, light music was introduced through the accordion faculty at the National Conservatoire. Because the accordionists during the 1980s, late 1980s, were all switching to the electric keyboards to take up gigs and to play light music. And it was because of that, they, they, they found the necessary platform to, okay, we should teach the electric keyboard. And if we teach electric keyboard, we're not going to teach just classical we're going to teach light music. And what's, what's a high quality form of light music? Jazz, international light music. So that was how it came in. So I, I, I think this will be a really uh, fascinating book project. I mean, Liu kuan himself has done a lot of research in the past on the subject matter. So my role is basically put it into, the, in, into a more global context, doing, making comparisons with its development in China, Eastern Europe, and as you mentioned to me earlier, before we started this conversation, Russia. And also comparing with the studies, there, there are a few studies about accordion elsewhere in, in South America and North America and, and Europe. Not a lot, <laughs> but a few. So we can do make those comparisons and put it in context. So we've been doing a lot of life stories interview with Liu Kuang and then we'll be conducting more life stories interviews with his uh, fellow colonists when I returned to Vietnam in, in October. And right now we are trying to do it online too, via Zoom interviews, but it's not very effective. I mean, the conversation goes on, but there are a few of things. It's always much better to do this kind of um, conversations face-to-face. So these are the two exciting things that I'm working on. Huh?
1: And once you get them published, I would love to have you back on the program. I will be most honored to have <laughs> The book is Jazz and Socialist Hanoi, published in 2022 with Rutledge. Professor Stan, BH Tan Tongbao, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Adam.